There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arseblog Arsecast right here on Arseblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. First thing I'll say is that because it's really warm here in Ireland today, I've got the window of my office open and across the way, at the back of the house here on the other side of the road, they're doing some drilling. They've been at it all day. They're doing some work on a house or whatever. So if you do hear some noises in the background, uh, please ignore them or do your best to ignore them. Hopefully they won't be too intrusive and you can enjoy this podcast, not least because I have an amazing story to tell you to begin with. The other day I was just going down the road and all of of a sudden who comes around the corner but and I'm all man you can't do that that's ridiculous that's that's outrageous do you not know what and he says yeah but that's what Arsene Wenger said to William Gallas in the changing room after the game and I was like holy shit wait till people find out So, as you can imagine, I was a bit taken aback by the whole thing. But look, you know now, and you can deal with that information the way that you see fit. We have got a good show coming up for you today. A little bit later on, I'll be talking to Daniel Storey from Football 365 about football clubs and Twitter bants and Petr Cech and Bayer Leverkusen and all that kind of stuff that went on after the uh, the Man City game. And in a few minutes' time, I'll be chatting to Jack Pitbrook from The Independent. He wrote a really interesting piece about a guy who I suppose was the big story of the weekend, leaving aside the defeat and the performance and everything else. In fact, it was Unai Emery's first game, the fact that it was the first game of the season. The guy who made the headlines really was Matteo Genduzzi because he was 19 years of age, thrown into action against the champions. Having played most of his career in Ligue 2, this was one hell of a step up and there were issues with his performance that you would have listened, I, I hope anyway, to the Arsecast Extra in which James and I spoke about him and his performance in, in a bit more detail. But anyway, James Jack has done a piece about his background, where he's come from, what kind of a character he is, and just the presence of a 19-year-old, that raw, that inexperienced in the team to play Manchester City was a big story. So we're going to have a chat about that in a couple of minutes' time. Just before that, though, to touch again on some of the reaction and fallout to the Manchester City game, I know I wrote about this on the blog during the week, and I think we spoke about it a bit on the podcast on Monday, but the outpouring of negativity towards... Arsenal, Unai Emery, the performance, what we were trying to do was really astonishing, to be honest. Like, if you were to ask 100 Arsenal fans before the game, do you expect Arsenal to win? There, of course, there would be some who are, yes, I'm optimistic. Yes, we can win this first game of the season. We're the Arsenal. We can always win. There is always going to be a certain percentage of people who will say yes. But I think the majority would have taken a realistic view and said, I don't really think so. It would be an amazing result and performance if we did. You never know with football. But, you know, realistically, I think Manchester City are going to win it. Same if you were to get 100 football pundits in a room and say, how many of you think Arsenal will win this game? 
I can't imagine that too many of them would have plumped for us over Manchester City. So in that context, and looking at where we are in the nascent stages of the Unai Emery regime, regime, reign, whatever you want to call it, knowing he's only had a few weeks in England, knowing he's only really had a few weeks with his players, knowing that some of his players have only come back late from the World Cup, knowing that it takes time for any manager to get his team playing the way they want, knowing how good City are, knowing that there was a 33-point gap between Arsenal and Manchester City last season, knowing all of those things and all the other things that we know about Arsenal and Manchester City and our likelihood of winning the game, I just don't get why anybody would take a really negative view of it. I mean, you can analyze the performance and you can say they could have done this better or they might have done that. But, you know, the result was not a surprise to anybody, surely. So it really feels like some of the criticism is just criticism for the sake of criticism. I think everybody can accept criticism if it's constructive, if it's deserved, if it's merited. I don't think anybody has a problem with that. But in these circumstances, it's just kind of mad. Like, do we, do we have to constantly live on the extreme of everything? Without any nuance, without any black or white, your position is fixed, either all the way over here or you're all the way over here on whatever it is. But there's a lot of people who exist in the middle of that who want to hear people, supposedly knowledgeable people, talk about what they've seen, but talk about it in a way that they can connect with. And I do, you know, I understand the the way that the media works. There's a battle for eyeballs and page views and clicks and reactions and people phoning into radio shows that they shouldn't phone into. And they know better, really, because the people running those radio shows are saying things to make people call in. They probably have to pay to call in. Do they 30 cents a minute or 30p a minute or whatever it might be? I know that's only minuscule amounts of of revenue, but the fact is the people that present these shows, I'm not saying all of them, but some of them, and there are a few in particular that will be running through your mind right now. All they do is just throw stuff out there. It's like chum in the water for sharks because they know people will react. They know they'll get angry and frustrated and even if they ring in and even if they counter the arguments with with common sense with facts with figures that might well completely and utterly disprove whatever bollocks the radio presenter is winding them up with they don't care about that because they're not open to having their mind changed they're like street urchins with a pack of fucking stink bombs that they go into a crowded room and just set them off the wankers. And I've forgotten what my point is now. I know I was coming to a conclusion with all this. And now I've forgotten. Maybe the point is, you know, just don't react to stupidity. Am I reacting to it now by talking about it? Maybe. Maybe it's just worth saying, though, every once in a while. A reminder that a lot of what you see, a lot of what you read, a lot of what you hear might well be just to get on your tits. And uh, if that is the case, if it does do that, maybe don't listen, don't read, don't watch, and find things that are better than that to listen to. Like this, sometimes. Sometimes it is. I make no guarantees of consistent quality, but there you go. There are about 5 billion Arsenal podcasts out there. 
It means there's something for everyone. Whatever flavor of fan you are, there is something that will tickle your fancy. You don't have to listen to or read or watch, you know, the wankers. I mean, you can if you want, but it's it's no good for your blood pressure, honestly. Right, let's get on with the show. And as I said earlier, we're going to talk now to Jack Pitbrook from The Independent about Matteo Genduzzi, about the piece that he wrote in The Independent this week. Uh, Jack, welcome along. How are you? Hey, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. Are you all ready for a new season? Well, I mean, it has kicked off, but, you know, are your batteries recharged? You're ready to go? Yeah, we we don't really have an option, do we? No. I mean, I'm not... Um, <laughs> uh, I, I kind of feel like the football's never been away. There were only... Three weeks between the World Cup final and the Community Shield. So I just feel kind of like I, I've never been away from it. Yeah. Uh, which is cool. Like that, that that's kind of my, our, that, that is our natural state of being as football fans. But, um, but yeah, I certainly don't feel like I've had a break and I was like excited for it to come back. Yeah. I felt like it was always there. Yeah. It's, it's here and here we go again and uh, we'll see where the season takes us. Um, it, it's been an interesting summer from an Arsenal point of view. And one of the most interesting things that happened was the signing of Matteo Genduzzi from Lorient, who came a little bit out of the blue, but in terms of the profile of the player, um, not that surprising because it, it looked as if Arsenal were going to sign a young midfielder, a young French midfielder, physically quite similar as well from, from PSG called Yassine Adli. That deal didn't go through. He decided to stay with PSG. But Genduzzi has come in and not only was he a bit of a surprise signing, he was a surprise starter in the first game of the season against Manchester City. Um what did you make of that decision from from Unai Emery to start a 19-year-old with such little experience at the top level in a game of that difficulty uh, against Manchester City, who we know are an amazingly good football team? Yeah, I really admired it as a decision. I mean, I remember when, back when Wenger left, I remember Ivan Gazeta saying that he wanted the new manager to continue to play young players. Mm. And so f- for Emery to pick Greg Genduzzi in that game is like a suggest that he's living up to to that expectation. Uh, and I thought, I mean, I thought he did pretty well. Like he, he obviously made a few bad mistakes. Like I think the first time he touched the ball, he went out for throw in. He was nowhere near Raheem Sterling for City's opening goal. Uh, and he's got a lot of, I mean, especially physically, he's got a lot of development to do. Yeah, um, Coming from the French second division. But I mean, you can tell like, it was immediately obvious what the attraction of Guendouzi was. Like, he's very natural on the ball. He's got a good eye for a pass. He's very... He always wants the ball and always wants to be involved in the play. And that is, you know, for a 19-year-old midfielder making his first Premier League start, that that is kind of the big take-home, I think, is his is the fact that he look, he looks like he wants... He looks like he wants to be really involved. Yeah, I mean, in in some ways, um, maybe people won't uh, like this particular comparison, but it's one of the things I've always liked about Aaron Ramsey is the fact that he's he's never hit on the pitch. He always wants the ball. He always wants to be involved and always wants to do something. And, you know, even if people are unconvinced by him or, or think maybe um, he, he's not the player they, they'd like him to be, even when he was going through a very difficult period, I remember there was a period where he had a, a hard time not long after he came back from the injury, he was he was finding it tough. His form wasn't great, but he was never one of those players who hid on the pitch. He always showed for the ball, and I think that's a really positive trait. And that's what we saw from Genduzzi, where 
um, perhaps a player without the character or the self-belief, as you uh, allude to in the article that you did in The Independent this week, we'll, we'll talk about now in a second. Without that, you know, that, that young player could possibly go into a shell and find the 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 circumstances, the pressure and everything else just completely debilitating, but that wasn't apparent uh, on Sunday. No, not not at all. Like that, that kind of that confidence to get on the ball, uh, to keep taking the ball, and then to try things as well. Like not be not just to play the sort of the simple pass. But I remember, do you remember that famous moment on on Sky Sports where I think I think it was Thierry Henry bemoaning what he called the Arsenal pass. That is like yeah. looking for looking for this a midfielder looking for the safe pass just yeah. to keep control of the ball and that's kind of what Arsenal had too much of whereas when Doozy was much more willing to like look forward directly and try and try and play in I think I think he I think he produced the best pass of the game through to Aubameyang um so he was clearly like uh willing to take risks in possession and which means risk giving the ball away um which is not something which a lot you know some teenagers will be cowed by the the fear that oh god I can't give the ball away in my Arsenal debut but he's he doesn't play like that and that was to me I found that kind of like refreshing and exciting and that's why I think that he will. He might. He has a really good chance of making it. We'll uh, just talk about the, the the piece that you did. But does it say something about the other options that Unai Emery has available to him as well? Is it to show a faith in Ganduzi for sure? Uh, you know, to to give that sort of responsibility to a nineteen year old. No manager will do that unless they really believe in the talent and the ability of the player. But it also might speak to him being perhaps unconvinced by some of the other options that he has available to him. Lucas Torreira is a big signing, so we, we can uh, we can put him to one side, for example, because I think he's just back from the World Cup and, and might need a bit more physical preparation before he, he plays in the Premier League because uh, he had Xhaka there as well, and Xhaka was similarly late back from the World Cup, so it would have been too much of a... Uh, a challenge, I think, to play two players who haven't had the same amount of preseason. But he did have Mohamed El Neni on the bench, who is a vastly experienced Egyptian international player. You know, similar-ish in terms of what the the job he wanted Gendouzi to do, and that he was overlooked in favour of this 19-year-old might tell us something about the way Emery views him. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, if I, I think Arsenal bought badly in midfield for years. Like, who was the last? Who was the last good central midfielder that Arsenal bought? Um, they've they've been lacking there for such a long time. I think the Jacket and Elneny are both really bad buys. Um, and yeah, I mean, I wonder whether in the long term, Guendouzi and Torreira might be the the pair that he goes with there. Mm-hmm. But obviously, this season, I don't think he'll want Guendouzi to be too exposed, just because he is so inexperienced. So. I won. I mean, you know, we are only one game in, but I wonder whether Jack and Guendouzi will kind of like job share in that position over the course of this season. Mm. That would be my guess. Yeah. Well, look. Obviously, we'll have to see. I think there's a, an element as well that when we see a 19-year-old come in and do that well, uh, I'm not saying the hype gets out of control, but because the midfield issues have been so profound at Arsenal over the last couple of years, a guy coming in and doing good things is immediately seen as, I wouldn't say a saviour, but people really want this kid to to do well. And it is a big learning curve. It is a steep learning curve. But as you, you write, uh, he's a guy who has a tremendous amount of self-belief, self-confidence, not to the point of self-destruction either, but it has got him in trouble a few times in his career before now, in his fledgling career, I think we'll say. Yeah, so he's fallen. So he, he's actually, I mean, he, he's barely played much that much senior football. Like I think he started four games in Ligue 1 two years ago, and then he started about half the games in Ligue 2 last year. But 
The problem is that he's the last two Lorient managers, Ben Arcassoni and Mikel Alondro, he fell out with both of them. Mm. Um, Cassoni because he he kind of, he got he got hauled off in a cup game against Nice in the middle of the season before last. And you know, he, to be fair, he was only seventeen at the time, but he got hauled off because he was about to be sent off. Uh, and then he had a big strop, and he didn't shake Cassoni's hand, and he handled it badly. So he spent a spell out of the team. And then last season in Ligue 2 with Mikel Alondro, he had a big row with him at halftime in the game against Valenciennes and was just kind of bombed out the squad for three months. And then he eventually came back in at the end of the season. But by that point, it was like obvious that he was going to leave. So he never really, that's like, so that's kind of two of the three managers that he's worked with, he's fallen out with. That said, Sylvain Ripoll, who is, who is the guy who gave... Gwenduzi his debut back in like October 2016 he he's I asked him you know did you have a did you have a problem with his attitude and Rupert said to me like no like if I had a problem with his attitude I wouldn't have played him mm. uh, so it's not like not everyone has found this but two of the three have found an issue with with Gwenduzi's attitude um so I, it's interesting to know where this comes from so I, when I was speaking to Alex Hayes who was the vice president of Lorient uh up until last year he said that it's like it's not that he's a bad lad; it's that he believes in himself so much, and he thinks he's so good that any he kind of doesn't like it when that is challenged or when someone suggests <laughs> that that might not be the case. Yeah. Um, Loic Ferry, who's the, the president of Lorient, he said that he thinks it's just like he just needs to be challenged all the time, and the reason that he didn't really make that much of an impression in the league was that he like it's not really a challenge, and he may you know, maybe he thought he was above it. Uh, those sorry, those, those are my words, not Loic's, but. Um, and that's why he thinks that may, maybe going to Arsenal will be the best thing for him because it is such a challenge and it's a kind of it's a stage that he really has to fill. But clearly, there has been like a bit of an issue getting the best out of him at Lorient. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not unusual, is it, for a nineteen-year-old no, or somebody before before the age of nineteen to uh, to to display some youthful exuberance? That might be a, a good a good way of putting it without uh, uh, castigating the the kid too much. Because if you do have that self belief and if you are young and impetuous, you know it takes time to mature, and maybe a big move to a big club where perhaps you know some of those traits won't be tolerated in a dressing room with lots of experienced players with an experienced coach and and coaches around him. You know there is a a need to grow up a little bit, and that will surely help him in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is that's the kind of optimistic view. But that is, I've heard a few people say things along those lines that maybe the kind of like the demands and the pressure of being at Arsenal will help bring the best out of him uh, yeah. because he'll realise that he, he he really has to apply himself. Um, also, I wonder whether Emery might be a really good coach for him because I think one thing we've seen in the last few years at Arsenal is that lots of really good young young players have gone in the team and they've been like backed and trusted by Wenger, but then they've not. You felt like they've not really been coached, like they've not really been given that like specific meticulous instruction yeah. that that they need, and that means that's kind of why even like you know Ram, from Ramsey, Wilshire, Walcott, all the way down to Oxlade Chamberlain, Bellerin, whoever, Iwobi. Yeah. Like maybe that maybe they haven't developed as much as they would have done under someone like a Klopp or Pep or or Pochettino or whoever. Whereas I think that Emery is more like those guys than he is like Wenger. I think he's more of a kind of details man. He's more meticulous, more methodical. Yeah. Um and for that reason I wonder whether he might be a really good coach for Gwenduzi because he can um you know, he will give him that kind of specific granular instruction. 
rather than just the kind of like you know you're a talented lad go and figure it out for yourself yeah kind of Wenger approach well yeah I mean that 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 could apply still to Bellerin to Iwobi to Maitland Niles and actually just going back to to Granite Xhaka it's one of the things that he has found difficult at Arsenal um, since joining the club was the lack of specific detailed instruction and detailed coaching as to, to what precisely his job is. And if you look at what Wenger said about Xhaka um, when he joined the club, there were really mixed messages. He said at one point he's a box-to-box midfielder, then he's a deep-lying midfielder, and then he's sort of you know changed his role almost as if he wasn't quite sure what sort of a player he was before he bought him and didn't quite know how to use him when he had him. So uh, I, I do take your point. I think Xhaka has been unconvincing, but he's had some good games. He, he seems to end seasons better than he starts them. So that might be something for Emery to take into account. But even he could be a player who could do better under that kind of a coaching approach. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I do think that there will be like, I don't know how Emery will do overall, like overall in terms of the, the team, but I do think that most of the individual players will improve. Mm. If you know what I mean, um, I and actually, particularly in defence, like even players who I thought, like I, I think Mustafi's been a disaster ever since they signed him. But then when you look at how many other centre backs have come in and kind of struggled at Arsenal in the last ten years, with the exception of Koscielny, who actually uh, coincidentally also came from Lorient. Um, you think that maybe the problem was more like the environment rather than rather than the individual and maybe mm. with some with like organization around him there's no reason that Mustafi can't be better this season like he's not he can't be a terrible player like he played for Valencia he played for Germany um and that's why I'd, I would be kind of optimistic from an Arsenal standpoint about a lot of these individuals and the prospect of them like doing things this year that they never really showed under Wenger the the style of play that Unai Emery wants to implement at Arsenal was clear uh, through through preseason, uh, although he did mix it around a little bit and play some different formations, but we saw on Sunday when they played Manchester City, he wants his team to play out from the back. It wasn't always successful. It was challenging. Um, it was difficult to watch at times. It was heart in mouth at times. Um, you know what? What way did you view that approach? Because it was one that came in for some criticism from former very brief England manager Sam Allardyce, for example, and uh, from from other sections of the media where they said, you know, Allardyce said it was stupid to play that way. Other people have criticised him for even trying to do it against a team like Manchester City. My, my personal view is that it's a fantastic learning experience if you want your team to play that way and you're coming up against a team that can really cope with it. It's a fantastic way to teach them and to say, look, in these circumstances, this is what we need to do in future games, etc., etc. So I'm curious as to as to how you how you felt his approach was on Sunday. I think it's a. I mean, I think it's a good approach. I think it's right. I think it's right for Arsenal. Um, I think it. I mean, I don't think it's. It's not stupid to play against City like that. Like the fact is that no, like literally any style of play that you put in against City, like the chances <laughs> are you're going to lose yeah. because they're the best team. Um, so you can't blame that style of play for losing to City. I actually think that's quite a good way of trying to play against City because if your players are technically good enough to play through City's pressing, then you can get at them. Uh, right, because they'll mm. be, you'll be kind of like beckoning them onto you, and then if you can get through, then they're defending halfway up the pitch, you can, and you can get in. Like, it, it, of course, it's not guaranteed to work, but it's it's probably got a better chance of working than what if you just went long every time and then lost the ball, and then City have got the ball, and then they're going to have it for the next ten minutes. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of admire it. I, there are questions about can the goalkeeper and defenders that 
Arsenal have do it properly. Like, obviously, it's easy for City now because, like, Edison, Stones and Laporte are all brilliant on the ball. They're really, like, great touch, really good passes. And that means that City can do that very, very well. Like, uh, check Mustafi Socrates. Like, let, you mm. know, let, let's wait and see <laughs> if those guys can do it in the same way. Yeah, it's, it, is a bit of a, it is a bit of a different thing. But also, it is a new thing. And it is something that even as professional footballers, they have to learn. And they have to learn a new way of, of, of playing. And look, it's not as if these are players who don't... Uh, or who haven't, certainly the ones that were there under Wenger, you know, he played possession football. He did want his teams to play from the back, perhaps not in quite the same way that Emery does. He didn't want them maybe taking the same kind of risks, but, you know, technically that was something that Wenger always uh, looked for with his Arsenal players was to, to make sure that they were comfortable playing out from the back. So it's not completely... Uh, alien to them to to try and do this, but obviously, you know, when you come up against a team as good as City and and you make a few mistakes at the back, people people do um, people do notice it. But it took time for for Pep to 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 make it work at City as well, you know. It did, and it also took a few, you know, it took a few windows to get all the players they needed. And like obviously, yeah. they you know they they messed up the signing of Bravo initially. Uh, so they had to wait an extra year to get Edison. Uh, Stones didn't have the best first season under Pep, and even in the second season, you know, he spent some time out of the team. They didn't get Laporte, and they tried to get him in the 2016. They had to wait until 2017 to get him. Um, sorry, actually, I think they got him in January 2018. So, like, these things do take time. Like, it takes a good sort of three or four windows to get all the players in. And, and the issue for Arsenal, I wonder, is whether or not, like, will Emery be given the will Emery be given enough time for him to, for like all the players to come into play to play this way? Or will he, if they get impatient with him, will he go and then they'll get a new manager in who might want to do, do something different, but then Miss mm-hmm. and Tat still sign, signing the players for the original style of play or whatever. So, you know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. a, it'd be interesting to see how the different, bits fit into place like Mislintat and Emery and so forth yeah yeah I mean that I think is going to be a very interesting uh, part of this new Arsenal is you know I feel personally I feel like Emery's input into the signings that Arsenal made this summer was pretty minimal um, yeah I agree you like, know so even actually this is even in my piece I, I suggested that so Emery like is an environment of Gwendouzi and PSG were like PSG did try and sign Gwendouzi this summer, like they tried to buy him back, having released him as a teenager, but that wasn't like driven by Emery. Yeah, uh, the, the Guendouzi signing was a Mislintat signing. Like yeah. Mislintat um, identified him when he was working with Dortmund, and Dortmund had a long-standing interest. And actually, Dortmund did try to get him this summer as well, even though Mislintat had gone to Arsenal. Uh, so he he was like a Mislintat signing, hmm. just like Socrates, um, just like Mkhitaryan, Aubameyang, whoever else. Yeah, Leno, the goalkeeper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, look, you know, these are the. Uh, these are the signings I think that people want from from Mislintat more than Socrates. They want the the unearthed gem, the kind of player that Arsene Wenger used to identify. And uh, look, it, it's early days, and we'll have to see how all those signings work out. But Jack, we'll leave it there, and we might catch up with you again uh, during the season. Nice one. All the best, mate. Bye. Thank you very much indeed to Jack Pitbrook. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at Jack Pitbrook with an E at the end of the brook, and you can find his stuff in the Independent. Still to come, Daniel's story from Football 365 right after this. And the traffic on the M25 this evening is bloody terrible. We all know why. Immigrants! 
Thank you very much indeed to Yada for the traffic news there. This is Talk Shite Radio, talking shite about sport 24 hours a day. You're with us for drive time, and what a show we've got for you today. Literally dozens of controversial opinions I made up only seconds before coming into this studio. And what better way to start than to wind up some easily wind-upable fans, the most wind-upable fans in the Premier League, Arsenal. They lost their opening game of the Premier League season to Man City. Has anything really changed at the Emirates? Of course, there's a new manager, a new head of recruitment, a new director of football, a new contract dude, five new players, and it is is a new style of football, but no, nothing at all has changed. It is the same old Arsenal, the same old spineless rubbish that we've seen season after season after season after season after season after season. And frankly, Arsenal are rubbish and the fans are complete idiots. Right, let's open the phone lines. Line one, who've we got? Hello, line one. No, strange. I must be a problem with the line. Line two. Line two. Which idiot Arsenal fan is going to try and argue with me? Hello? Well, don't seem to have anybody on line two. Let's go to line three. There must be some half-wit gooner out there. Hello? Hello? Do we have a problem with the phone lines? Is, uh, is there a problem with the uh, BT, perhaps? The uh, telecom tower is down. I'll just check with my producer. Fat Bears, everything uh, working okay? Well, the phone lines are working all right, just nobody's calling. But no, how can this be? If people don't react to my semi-coherent bullshit, then what have I got? How can I remain relevant without feasting off the rage of telephone callers? If they don't call, I've got nothing. If a troll can't troll, does he even exist? Oh, this is a scary prospect. We better take an ad break. When we return, Jamie Redknapp will be joining us in studio to explain corner flags. Talk show radio. Talking shit about sport 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, joining me now on the Arsecast from Football 365, delighted to welcome back, as always, Daniel Story. Hi there. Hi there, morning. I want to talk to you first about a an article that you wrote on Football 365, which I guess will divide opinion, which is no bad thing in itself because it would be very boring if if uh, everybody agreed on everything and this is football and clearly they don't. But it's about Petr Cech and about a, a, 
a Twitter interaction that he had uh, following the Manchester City game, the 2-0 defeat to Manchester City. Maybe you could just spell it out a little bit for people who weren't aware of it. Yeah, so so obviously within that game, halfway through the first half, Czech made a, a fairly obvious mistake where he received a, a back pass from Matteo Guendouzi and tried to play the ball out the back and succeeded only in kicking the ball just wide of of his own goal. Um, the result was obviously a corner and nothing came of that corner, but it, it it was high profile because of the kind of strange nature of it rather than what, what it led to. Um, and obviously, Czech selection for that game was slightly controversial and I think most people thought that Burton Leno, the new goalkeeper, bought from Bayer Leverkusen would start. Um, and Bayer Leverkusen's English language uh, Twitter account replied to an Arsenal fan that posted the clip of of the mistake uh, and basically said, look, uh, we know a guy that can do better than that. Uh, and then responded again to it with a video of, of Leno passing around from the back saying, if you want a guy that, that can pass out from the back, this is your man. Yeah. Um, and because of the very nature of it, that became a story. And then the following day, Petr Cech then responded and said, look, you know, very politely said, look, I think this is a bit of a crap thing to do. Um, Let me just, I'll just, uh, I'll just read exactly what Petr Cech said. He said, uh, at Arsenal, we share important values, which make us a big club, not only on the football side, fair competition, professionalism and sportsmanship are the biggest ones you teach young footballers. And it's sad to see when other clubs don't share the same values. So, uh, you know, people will say that he shouldn't have responded, that mm. he should just take it on the chin. He made a mistake and getting involved in this kind of thing, it only makes the story bigger, like you're giving oxygen to something which really doesn't deserve it. Uh, and I yeah. get that as well. I mean, I do see that point of view, but it feels to me, and I think you probably feel the same way based on, on the article that you've written, that this kind of... um these Twitter accounts that are purportedly official arms of a club are verging into territory that perhaps they shouldn't verge into. If they are supposedly representative of a football club, uh, an official arm of a football club, getting involved in sort of petty online trolling or bants or whatever way you want to call it, yeah, I don't think is the right thing for them to do. I mean, you can be engaging, you can be funny, you can be irreverent. And I think if you look at the the Roma one, which is quite really quite a funny Twitter account, the English language version of, of uh, the AS Roma account, that they do it quite well, whereas this yeah. didn't seem to hit the mark at all for me. Yeah, exactly right. And and to the slight defense of, of accounts like by Leverkusen, um, they exist because the clubs have decided through a very deliberate st- social media strategy that they want to um, they want to banter on Twitter. They think it's great for engagement. They think engagement equals followers and followers equals sponsorship. Um, so it's then very hard for them to, to blame the individuals when they do step over the line. And I think sometimes these things are about trial and error. And I think this is yeah. fairly clearly um, an error. And, I, you know, I have actually spoken to the person that runs that account and they've said yeah it was an error um and but as you say i think it's fairly indicative of a a movement as a whole which actually i also don't particularly like i don't particularly like the idea of clubs engaging in this sort of band simply because and maybe i'm being grumpy about it simply because i think they should be better than that yeah i mean when you say better than that how do you 
how do you sort of expand on that a little bit? Like, is there? I mean, look, I think there's a line. There's got to be a seriousness about the an official communication channel for a football club and i think you know we have to remember that that's what these are first and foremost they're a communication channel and of course they can communicate with everybody all over the world in an instant uh you yeah. know i i find the 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 i think you you make the point in the article it happens in germany quite a lot this inter-club bants before a game you know i think we saw some of it last year cologne did it to arsenal maybe before one of the europa league games and certainly Bayern did it or they they tagged Arsenal into uh, a tweet where, you know, referencing the the five one defeats in the in the Champions League, that kind of thing, which I don't really think is yeah. is necessary, and I don't think it necessarily reflects well on the clubs. But I do wonder, perhaps, is that because I'm forty six years of age, and I don't know what <laughs> age you are, but you're not eighteen, shall we say? Whereas yeah. if if you are, and if you've grown up in this. Uh, in an environment where social media, you've never known a world without social media, it might feel quite normal. Yeah, I think there's certainly an argument for that. And, and let's not pretend that I haven't been told that over and over again over the last two days on, <laughs> on Twitter as well. Um, but actually, fans are, are fairly regularly surveyed on what they would like from um, their own football club social media. And they generally come up with three distinct answers. The first is that they would like instant communication on on certain issues. Um the second is that they would like behind-the-scenes footage, um, feeling closer to the club's stars, which which actually was the intention of, of, of Twitter in the first place. Uh, and thirdly, they would like information that they can't get from anywhere else. Um, they would like the, the club to be authoritative. Um, I personally don't see how this kind of Twitter banter stuff fits into any of those categories. I don't think we would be any worse off without it. Um, and also, the, you know, the other thing is that we mentioned the German clubs. Um, as I understand it, at least four or five of the top German clubs, their English language accounts are run by the same firm in Munich. So this is not, you know, this is not, you know, impromptu off the cuff fun. This is very deliberate marketing strategy. And I think there's a very real difference between those two things. Yeah, I mean, that does open you up into a world of real cynicism, doesn't it? Because yeah. not only is this the Bayer Leverkusen account, it's the Bayer Leverkusen English account because yep. English language is a far bigger market than German. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe because they have that little bit of distance, because it is in a different language, maybe they feel like they can do things that they wouldn't do in German. I don't know if they do the same kind of stuff in German that they do in English, whether it's just replicating the stuff that's on the German account. Um, but it is, if it is, you know, what you say, one company sitting down and um, firing out all these accounts, do we know, are they actually, is it a Bayer Leverkusen fan or is it somebody who says... It's, uh, the person that runs that account is, is, is someone that works out of Brooklyn in New York, um, and I suspect the English language, actually, you do detect a very, um, a, well, I say a very, maybe that's over, overstressing it, but you do detect a sort of Americanization with some of the stuff, I think. Um, the kind of emoji culture feels to me quite American. Mm. Um, uh, they are unusual in that they're run outside, I think. Uh, as I say, most of them are sort of part of this um, marketing farm, which... You know, the, the, the Bayer Leverkusen marketing director, Jochen Rothaus, has been very transparent about the fact that this is done not just for, you know, just for fun or engagement, but, because, but part of a marketing strategy. They want to increase the followers exponentially so that they can then go to sponsors and say, uh, when we follow up a bit of banter with 
an advert or a, a strip with your sponsor's logo on it, we can guarantee this many people seeing it. So yeah. it isn't, it isn't fun because it's forced fun. Yeah. I remember reading a while ago, there's a, a website that people will, I'm sure be aware of where I'm not going to name it, but it's, it does a lot of clickbaity kind of stuff. And they had people writing for it, football writers writing for it. And it was a case that if you're, if you're, article got a certain amount of clicks or page views mm. you got paid for it or you got paid once it went above 10,000 and if it went above 50,000 you got paid a, a little bit yeah. more and in order to drive that kind of clicking and engagement we know that uh, it, it it can bring in what you might call lowest common denominator tactics so yes. whether it's yeah. a headline or whether you're writing something you know you're driven that way by the demands of the people above you. So if this is a deliberate marketing strategy, if your aim is to get more likes and more retweets and more replies, the more controversial, and I put that in inverted commas, you are, the more likely that is to happen. Unless, you know, you are somebody like the Roma account who who appear to have done it in a much more... Um, maybe the maybe the end game is the same there for them as well. Maybe it, you know it is, and it is just as cynical. But it does it doesn't feel quite as uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. It just feels a bit more natural. The the humor yeah. it's funnier and it's it's not more pure, but it's just naturally funny. Whereas the others, you feel like they're forcing it a bit. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't doubt that that Roma's end game is is the same, but. You you can have that end game, I think, and and still find a um, a more tasteful strategy to do it with. Um, I actually, I, I mean, I actually, I am cynical process simply because I say I want a football club to be better than that. To my mind, the potential money you get out of um, doing tweets like that to go to get a few more followers to have a little bit more negotiate, you know, bargaining chip in negotiations over sponsorship. To me, strikes as such a small drop in the ocean of, of football club revenue anyway, that I just think they have an opportunity to sit above it. The, the example you use of, of the media, uh, you know, it makes me want to cry, obviously, but I can see how that happens because yeah. that's the only way that that company makes money. And the only way they can pay their staff is, is by making money from each of those articles. I don't agree with it, but I can see how it happens. But for a football club, there seems a huge amount of separation at that point, and that's why I kind of feel it's particularly unnecessary. Um, you've, you've been on the internet, and I've been on the internet, and many of the people who are listening to this uh, will spend time on the internet and on social media. And we are, I think, aware that you, within your own social media experience, you can cultivate the the bubble that you like. So if you don't want to hear certain things, you can make sure you don't hear certain things. If you only want to hear certain things, you can make sure you only hear certain things. But I think we all know that um, beneath the people who are decent and normal and funny and engaging, there is a kind of um, cesspool of wankers all yeah. over social media and all over the internet who like nothing more than to abuse or to argue or to call people names or to do all, all those kind of things. And unfortunately, Arsenal fans uh, are part of that. Fans of every club uh, have that element to them. Mm. Do you feel like clubs have to be kind of aware of that element before they post anything on social media do they have a responsibility i mean mm. i'm not saying you should be guided by 
the worst of the worst. But I don't think it's right to completely ignore what a tweet might do um, based on the way people behave on the internet simply because they are people on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they do have a they do have a corporate social responsibility. Um, whether they um, choose to accept that or not doesn't change doesn't change the point. I don't think. I think if if the the, the weird thing and the unique thing about social media is it makes some some of this stuff so throwaway and so uh, instantaneous that people drop their boundaries uh, and that include and drop their standards and I think that includes football clubs there's absolutely no way that if social media didn't exist um, that Bayer Leverkusen would put a story on their website for example that said um, that you know they express the same sentiment as they did in the tweets about yeah. how to chat there's no way that they would release a statement if you know if the internet didn't exist there's no way they would release a statement in print it just simply wouldn't happen so it's the medium itself that clearly persuades them to drop those standards and i i absolutely agree with you football clubs need to realize um that there are you know there are you're right the, the tagline cesspool of wankers is absolutely right in in a large percentage of cases unfortunately and i think a growing percentage of cases and and what it does by tweeting things like that is it it provides a, a platform to those for those things to happen it, it almost normalizes it you know someone like that thinks well if a football club can banter off a, a goalkeeper from another club then surely we're allowed to call someone a, a twat because you know you've normalized that kind of Bantification and what they see as as banter is is calling someone a twat, which is is madness to me. But um, if a football club sets the tone, then everyone else will follow. Yeah, and look, it is possible to engage with people and to disagree with people and to to argue with people even uh, on the internet without mm. resorting to all those kind of worst. Uh, habits that that people have you know i know it's very difficult to imagine but it is definitely possible <laughs> to have a conversation with somebody and, and not do it so yeah we'll we'll see where it goes i think it's an interesting one and you do wonder how far it will go before i don't know whether clubs have to take stock of this in in some ways i will say i think i think having spoken to to Bayer Leverkusen i think that they probably or they certainly realized that this was a mistake. Um, I think we probably won't see anything like that from them again. Um, I don't think they'll stop with the kind of the general mood that they purvey on Twitter, but I think we'll certainly see less of the the direct sure um, direct responses to incidents. Um, which yeah, which if nothing else is a good thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's that then to me justifies the response made by Petr Cech. Like, yes. yeah, I don't think he was necessarily being thin-skinned. I think he probably feels like you do and I do that if you're representing a football club, whichever football club it is, that you have to you have to uh, maintain some measure of respect for the opposition and not even the opposition. This was not a, a game that Bayer Leverkusen were involved in. Of course, uh, Bernd Leno was, uh, you know, sitting on the bench, but uh, that's a different thing. So for me, that justifies the response from Czech. And if Leverkusen and the people who run that account admit this was a mistake, we'll learn from it and do things differently in the future, then I don't think that's any bad thing. So um, well done, Petr Cech, as far as I'm concerned. Um, moving on, just very quickly, uh, your thoughts on on the state of play at Arsenal. I don't think we can read a huge amount into into the 2-0 win or 2-0 defeat to Manchester City. There's me uh, dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what did you take from the summer and what did you take from the opening day, if anything at all? Uh, I... I... <laughs> You know, I read a lot of people saying, "Well, nothing's changed, nothing's changed," and I thought, "Well, I thought well, that yes, was weird." That's, yeah, that, 
that's what happens when when arguably five years, maybe even more, um, of managed decline um, is impossible to address in one summer. And I think every reasonable Arsenal supporter was perfectly aware of that. I think it was the worst game that Arsenal could have had because it was a home game which fans always expect to win. But it was against a team who were so much further down the line than Arsenal in terms of... Um, in terms of squad depth, squad quality, in terms of um, that kind of shared vision for the club, that it was always going to be an incredibly difficult task and it, and it proved exactly that. Um, I think there are some slight concerns about Emery's ability in his first season to, um, to imprint his philosophy on the club. I think that some of, the, some of the ways he would like to play, he simply doesn't have the, the personnel for that, the high pressing from attackers particularly. Um, and also, I thought it was really interesting that people said, oh, not much has changed again. And I thought, well, Guardiola struggled in his first season at Manchester City. And you look at the back five that played against Arsenal and you had a, a £50 million left back, a £50 million right back, two £50 million centre backs and a £35 million goalkeeper. <laughs> Unai, Unai Emery is not going to get the chance to do that. And that's the big question about Arsenal is, is how, how much patience he gets now um, to do what he needs to do. Because... For him to buy play, spend that much money could take three, four, probably four transfer windows. So you're saying, well, that's two years for him to even sort out a back five. So it's an impossible question to answer, but I hope and, and, and beg that he gets all the patience he needs. I'm not, I'm not convinced he's necessarily the best man for the job, but he's clearly a, um, he's clearly a, a very capable coach and. And Arsenal, there is no quick fix now. There's no one that they could have turned to to instantly fix things. So there is no option but patience. Yeah, I think that's an important point, is that in order to get back to a level which might make us competitive for the Premier League, I mean, I, you know, more and more it feels like, uh, you know, football can change and things in football can change very quickly. But you look at that example you cite of Guardiola rebuilding the back five, is uh, you know it hadn't not that it hadn't occurred to me but just the the stark reality of spending that much money 200 and whatever million pounds just to do your back five that's mm. not going to be something that Arsenal can do so the only way to be competitive is to find a different way you know yeah uh, particularly as we we take it as read that Stan Kroenke is not going to put his own money into Arsenal. He's going to run it the way it's been run. The club will spend the money that it makes and it's not going to get, it would be a huge surprise anyway, if it were to get that kind of investment from the owner. So the only way is a different way and that way might be smarter coaching. It might be taking a long-term view of things. It might be trying to unearth gems uh, along the lines of Genduzi, if he turns out to be a gem, you know, it's still way too early to say. But those kind of signings might be the way for, for Arsenal to do it. But in order to get that right, there's going to be a, a fair bit of trial and error along the way, I think. Yeah, and, and then the, I think the important point you make is about the coaching because there is a there is a potentially uh, very positive spin there in that um, I think it's clear to, to Arsenal fans and beyond that, that under Wenger last season, the team looked... Um, undercoached, um, both tactically and also in terms of uh, mental resilience, I think, particularly in, mm. in times of adversity. So there is an option and there is a, a, poss a very real possibility that, that Unai Emery can cause a very quick surge in the right direction there. Um, whether that will be enough to get the team back into the top four this season, I'm kind of... 
um, slightly pessimistic on that just because of the spending of of clubs around you. And mm. you know, I know Tottenham haven't spent much, but they have a they have a better core at the moment in terms of player quality. Um, and Liverpool have spent more than any other club, and they finished. You know, they finished only just in the top four last season. So yeah. yeah, it's going to be very difficult. But I do think the team will be better coached tactically and will have more mental resilience. But th- as a, to repeat, and as you say, this is a long-term fix. All right. Well, look, we'll uh, we'll catch up with you a bit later in the season and see how it's going. But for now, we'll leave it there. Daniel, thanks a million. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers to Daniel. You can find him on Football365 where he writes consistently excellent stuff. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, it is at DanielStory85, at DanielStory85. Now, looking ahead to the next weekend of the Premier League season, you know, you kind of hope that when the fixture list chucks you a big fucking lemon like it did on the opening day with Manchester City, your next game might be slightly easier. And I suppose it is slightly easier, but not much Chelsea away is a very uh, is a very difficult fixture and without taking anything for granted or going down the road of well we should definitely beat this team because we're Arsenal and they're that team you know I think there are some teams in the Premier League this season that if we were playing this weekend we would feel relatively confident about taking all three points instead we have to go to a ground which hasn't been a happy hunting ground for us for quite some time and a Chelsea side, which I think finished the transfer window pretty strongly. Uh, they've got a new manager in too, so whether that's a factor or not, we'll have to wait and see. We did play them in Dublin, of course, but the two teams that, that play on Saturday uh, will be very different from the teams uh, that played in, in Dublin. Uh, in terms of the team news, obviously we've got a problem with Ainsley Maitland-Niles. You will have seen the news, no doubt, that he's uh, fractured a bone in his fibula. He will be out until, I guess, October sometime. They said six to eight weeks, but he's going to miss a lot of football. And unfortunately for him, he's missing games that he would definitely be involved in, like the Europa League group games. And, you you know, you would have fancied him to get a few starts in midfield in there to, to really aid his development. Very unfortunate incident with Kyle Walker on Saturday. He's come out of it uh, with a, a bad injury, but it could have been worse as well. So... Left back is something that Unai Emery has to consider. Nacho Monreal is back in training. You would hope that he's ready to start. I know he hasn't had a huge amount of preseason, but it's not like he played a huge amount during the summer in the World Cup for Spain. You know, he he will have had a good rest. And hopefully, um, you know, footballers these days, they do keep themselves fit. It's either him or Stefan Lichsteiner. Then there are other decisions he has to make as well. Going to a ground like Stamford Bridge. He was happy to throw Matteo Genduzzi in against Manchester City at home. Can he do that against Chelsea away from home? Do we need a bit more experience in there? I think Premier League experience will count in his team selection for this weekend. I wouldn't be surprised to see Genduzi on the bench. I know Granit Xhaka had a poor game against Manchester City, but he could be an option simply because he is more experienced. He's got this seniority. The thing about midfield, though, is he does have options. You know, he's got Elneny, he's got Torreira, he's got Ramsey, he's got Xhaka, he's got Genduzi. And we could even include Mesut Ozil in that, for example. If we were to play 
two at the base of the midfield or play with a number 10. We could use Ozil as a 10. We could play Aubameyang and Lacazette together, even though maybe it's not ideal, but we look better when Lacazette came on. And then for the other side, you've got Mkhitaryan, you've got Alex Iwobi, who might give you a hard-working performance like he did last season at Stamford Bridge. Uh, Danny Welbeck is back in full training as well. So he does have options to not pick Granite Xhaka if he feels that Xhaka is not ready or not quite up to speed or or his performance wasn't up to up to scratch. Uh, Lucas Torreira, I suppose, is the one that we're all dying to see. He did come on against Man City. He looked good-ish, you know, but it, it's hard to tell in, in such a short cameo against a team that were beating us uh, in a game in which we really weren't likely to get anything out of it. But I thought he did show some, some promising bits and pieces in the time that he was on the pitch. So he does have options and he does have ways of assembling his team that could be exciting. Even the fact that he picked Genduzi against City, the fact that he took Ramsey off, the fact that he took Xhaka off shows that he's not predictable or not as predictable as Arsene Wenger was because we knew what he was going to do for the va- the vast majority of the time because, well, we knew him very well because he'd been there for so long, whereas Emery has come in and he's not afraid to make decisions and big decisions. One of those, of course, is the goalkeeper. He is going to stick with Petr Cech. He did have some difficulties with his footwork in the game against Manchester City. I assume, having witnessed that, Chelsea will probably try and exploit that with a press of their own. Now, whether they've been working on it enough in training for, for Czech to be more comfortable, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. I think we will get better at playing this kind of game. But again, it does raise questions about the way Emery views uh, Bernd Leno because he is, it seems, better with his feet than Petr Cech, but still... Unai Emery wants to pick Petr Cech because he probably feels he's a better goalkeeper, a better shot stopper, more commanding in his area. All those things, even if Cech is weaker in that one area, he must think that Cech is is the better goalkeeper at this moment in time. It is a long season. It's only just beginning and Leno may end the season or get his chance in the team and, and keep his place, but... I don't know. Something about the the situation just feels a little bit off to me. You would think one of our biggest signings of the summer would go straight into the team if the manager was convinced by him. And he's not. And it's not as if, with all due respect to Petr Cech, that Petr Cech has been absolutely brilliant. And that's why he can't get in the team. I think the the opportunity was there for a new signing to be made number one from the start if the manager or the head coach thought he was the right player. So we'll we'll wait and see what happens there. But it is going to be another very difficult game, isn't it? Because Chelsea are a strong side. They're a strong side at home. They've got lots of quality players. But hopefully we've learned enough from what we did against Man City to improve, to be more defensively solid, and to be a bit more potent at the attacking end of the pitch. So uh, I'll keep fingers crossed. I'd like a win. I'd take a point. And I don't really want to consider anything else. But we'll find out on Saturday evening from 5.30. You can join us, of course. We'll have a live blog and we'll have all the match report and player ratings and everything else on Ars Blog News. James and I will be here on Monday. We'll have an Arscast extra for you looking back on the on the Chelsea game and whatever the hell happens at Stamford Bridge. We'll have that for you on Monday. And to uh, finish off today, rather than play the theme music, rather than have a bit at the end... Let's listen to one of the most amazing and unique voices that music has ever given us. We lost a real legend this week, so here's Aretha, and I'll talk to you on Monday. Until then, cheers, bye-bye.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.